and turn with me, if you will, first to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which you'll find if you're using a pew Bible, you will find it on page 479. And our sermon text today will be from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 12 to 22, followed in an explanatory sort of way and illuminating kind of way by a reading from Romans, the eighth chapter, verses 16 to 28. We'll begin with Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. King Solomon writing uh, in his old age by the Spirit of God as he reflects on life, looking back on his life and the years that were given him. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them, that is for man, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Romans 8 beginning at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for those passages that are troublesome to us, that are vexing to us, those passages that we don't fully understand. And we thank you that in the unfolding of your covenant, the unfolding of your revelation through the ages, these things become clearer to us. Thank you for this opening of the rose of revelation, that what was once tightly compacted through time and the revelation of your spirit to the prophets and apostles of old, that which is dark becomes light, that which is obscure becomes more and more clear to us. Open our eyes to these things, we pray. In this passage before us, we humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, besides the fact that today happens to be Christmas Day, it also holds the much higher biblical distinction of being the Lord's Day. And not just any Lord's Day. This is the final Lord's Day, the final Christian Sabbath of this year of our Lord, 2022. Now, the central component of remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the central component is, of course, remembering. That's the operative word. We remember it to keep it holy. We spend this day most profitably when we consider the infallible record of things past the mighty redemptive deeds of our covenant God. Deeds centering in the birth and ministry and sufferings and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We also use this day profitably 
when we remember God's covenant promises and reflect on the things still to come. My point is, this is not merely a day to celebrate, much less merely to vegetate. This is a holy day that God set apart for our rest, it's true, our rest, but also for our deliberate reflection on the larger, weightier, more important issues of life. I want you to think that through, that without a Christian Sabbath in which to think a deliberate, in a deliberate, purposeful way about life and our living of it, we'd very soon be swept away by the 10,000 tediously mundane demands of the here and now. Wouldn't we? We'd have no time left to think. Which is pretty much where much of this present generation is right now. Sadly, where even much of the 21st century church is jostled and spun around and lost in the relentless knee-jerk demands of the present moment, frantically kept busy under the crunch of time and the tyranny of the urgent. That's where we are. But shouldn't God's own covenant people, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, shouldn't we stand apart from the restless, reactive, unthinking world around us? Shouldn't we? We ought to be, and for the sake of Christ's honor, we need to become a more deliberate, thoughtful, reflective people. People who think through where it is we ought to be, where we ought to be headed, and how it is we might get there. That takes some thought. A people wise enough not to be sidetracked, not to be called off from the good old ways of the gospel by every new fad, fashion, and philosophy that happens to come along. We need to be a solid, immovable people. And it's thinking, deliberate thinking, reflective thinking, that will get us there. This Lord's Day invites us to the Christian duty of reflection. And his word sets before us not only copious grist for the mill of godly reflection, it also offers us helpful examples of men and women actually doing this engaging in reflective thought. Today's text in Ecclesiastes 3 is one of those examples of reflective thought. Here we have a prime example of a wise, experienced man thinking through the important issues of life. This isn't Solomon deciding what he's going to have for breakfast. This isn't Solomon deciding how he's going to strategize the next military campaign. It's not Solomon reacting to the latest demand made upon him as king in Jerusalem. No, there's obviously a place for that level of thinking 
the, the level that we call problem-solving or decision-making. <clears throat> but here, he's engaged in something much higher than mere decision-making. He's engaging in constructive reflection on life. The kind of reflective thought upon which a soundly biblical worldview can be built. Having just concluded in the first 11 verses that God has made everything beautiful in its time, in verses 12 and 13, he then goes on to reflect, first of all, on man's best use of the limited time he has. Which is a pretty important topic. How we use our time. What should be important to us. And then secondly, in verses 14 and 15, his mind turns from reflecting on the chief end of man, man whose life is a vapor, man who's here today and gone tomorrow. His, his mind turns now to a consideration of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God who's ordered all of time, all of history for his own glory. Again, this is some pretty weighty material. But those two categories he's been considering and reflecting on, those two categories laid side by side, lead Solomon to the problem that has perplexed so many thinkers down through the ages. It's the problem of man's sin. The problem of wickedness. This third focus of Solomon's reflective thought begins at verse 16. How can the existence of wickedness in the world, how can this be made to comport with God's ordering of all history for his own glory? And to prevent this from becoming merely an academic exercise, there's one very important follow-on question. What's God going to do about it? What's God going to do about the problem of human wickedness? Now, if this doesn't sound like a sermon fit for a Christmas morning, I want you to be patient and work through this with me. Because the truth of the matter is, every sermon on this or any other Old Testament passage Every sermon either is or ought to be a Christmas sermon. Just follow along and you'll see what I mean. Point number one that we've already uh, addressed. Man's best use of the limited time he has. That's what Solomon addresses here in verses 12 and 13. Man's best use of the limited time he has. Humanity's actual situation in the world on account of our fallenness into sin, on account of our alienation from God. Man's actual situation is far removed from that upwardly mobile, ultimately perfectible status in which men have imagined ourselves, at least since the so-called age of reason back in the 18, 18th century. Let me suggest to you 
that the major events of the 19th century and the 20th century and now in the 21st century, major events make it abundantly clear that we are not, as a human race, we are not the nobility, we are not the kings nor the angelic creatures that we once vainly thought humanity to be. Very clearly, we are not the captains of our fate, not the masters of our soul. If our first father Adam was a king of sorts, being made in the image and likeness of God, if he was a king, then his crown soon lay fallen in the dust. As a human race descended from Adam the sinner, we've all fallen and we can't get up. Sin entered in and life for all of us became both painful and short. Solomon here reflects on the human condition, bracketed as we are, by the limits of time, and he couches our chief end, man's chief end, not in the expansive terms of a royal race created in the image and likeness of God, not in terms of our commission to subdue the earth and rule over it for the glory of God. Solomon here couches it, rather, in the scaled-down terms of the average blue-collar worker. Verses 12 and 13, I know, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Such a blue-collar life that is lived under the sun, that is without reference to the glorious kingdom of God, this represents the very apex of human success human achievement. This is what it means to the average Joe to be on top of the world. As good as it gets, it's Friday night, your work's behind you, the bar's open, the beer's cold, and the darts are flying. Pretty good life for many people. That's what they see as the height of the good life. The end of the work week, and you're relaxing. The problem is that lurking in the back of your mind is the plain nagging fact that there is more sand in the bottom than the top of your hourglass. This is the best that life lived under the sun has to offer me, and it is all passing by so quickly. So quickly. This portrait of humanity, now at verse 14, fades to black. And by contrast, Solomon notes this of God, who sovereignly ordered all of time, all of history, for his own glory. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. And what's he mean by this? Well, what he means by this, as we saw last week, 
is what the Westminster Assembly back in the 1640s called the decrees of God. The decrees of God will remain unchanged and unchangeable forever. And you may ask, what are the decrees of God? And many of you know the answer, at least some of you do. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's the work of God. A man's life, by contrast, typically feels like one long, unbroken string of contingencies, uncertainties, a million forks in the road, a million decisions to make along the way. The only constant, it seems, to a man's life is change. First, there's growth from infancy through childhood, growth into your mid-30s. That's one, one element of the change. And then once you're cresting the hill in your 30s, you begin to detect that everything thereafter is a long descent into decay that lasts for the rest of your life. Change and decay. That's the story of fallen humanity. That is life under the sun, and it's fleeting. But there are no contingencies, no variation, no shifting shadow in the eternal purpose of God. If you should ever think that God changes, and this is important because people do think this, if you should ever think that God changes, it's because you're changing. He hasn't moved. You have. As his infinitely wise, immutable purpose gradually unfolds over the course of human history, men vainly imagine that we're making some positive personal contribution above and beyond God's eternal decree. Or we vainly imagine that we're minimizing some of that plan's hard providential edges. We're making life easier. Or we vainly imagine that we have the power of otherwise trimming and tailoring what God has from eternity foreordained. But Solomon, you see, thought long and hard on this. He thought long and hard. He knew that things weren't as they seem. He knew that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should reverence him. Not ourselves. We should not be reverencing ourselves. We reverence him. All very well. God is absolutely sovereign over time and space. His eternal decrees unfolding throughout the course of human history cannot and will not be thwarted by angels or by men or by demons. This being the case, 
then where does wickedness fit in? Where does it fit into God's perfectly orchestrated plan? God whose very nature is infinite holiness. God whose eyes are too pure to look on evil. Where does wickedness fit into this? Well, we do well to reflect long and hard on this, as Solomon did. Because if there's such a thing as a question of the ages, it is this question. What do we do with the problem of wickedness? Does the lingering presence of sin in the world, maybe I should call it the flood tide of sin in the world, does this imply that an omnipotent God isn't fully committed to eliminating it? If so, then how can he be infinitely good? Or on the other hand, is he perhaps infinitely good but not fully capable of eliminating it? Is the problem with his goodness, that he doesn't want to eliminate it, or with his power that he's not able to? This is how people customarily have framed the issue. And the obvious problem with that approach is that those people have taken their seat on the judge's bench and put God, the judge, in the dock as the accused. That's the problem with that approach. But, beloved, God will not long suffer himself to be placed in the dock for our examination. Job, you remember, learned this by the end of his book. The Almighty is under no obligation whatsoever to explain himself to sinners. And so Solomon here is wise enough to limit his hypotheses on the problem of human wickedness. He limits himself to two rather modest conjectures about the matter. His first hypothesis relates to divine timing and his second to a divine test. Why doesn't God settle things once and for all right now by judging all men, the righteous and the wicked? Right now. Why doesn't he do it? Well, verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. In other words, there's one very plausible answer to the problem of wickedness in the world. God is indeed a just judge, and judges adjudicate using a docket, a court docket, an agenda, in other words, for the business coming before the court. And the final judgment of the righteous and the wicked is there, listed among the other business on God's judicial docket. He's getting to it. He just hasn't come to it yet. And our duty in such a case isn't to question his justice, isn't even uh, his timing, but simply to be patient as we wait for that judgment. At the right time, 
the judge of all the earth, will do right. A second conjecture of Solomon as to the problem of wickedness in the world appears in verses 18 to 21, and it amounts to this. Perhaps this providential delay in God setting things right at the cosmic level, dealing with wickedness, perhaps this delay serves the divine purpose of humbling men. in order for them to see that they are but beasts. And lawlessness and slowness to enforce the law, it will do that, won't it? It will humble a people. It turns once reasonable men into savages. Some of the most gut-wrenching passages of Scripture can be found in the latter chapters of the book of Judges. During those days, when there was no king in Israel, everyone did whatever was right in his own eyes. And they were doing some pretty beastly things. Proud sinners do well to pay attention to the warnings of Scripture, improve this brief season of grace that we enjoy right now, and humble themselves before God. That's how we ought to be using our time. Nebuchadnezzar in his day failed to humble himself before God. And so the day came when God did it for him. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was stripped of every vestige of his humanity. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. He became essentially a beast. And Solomon thinks, perhaps for this reason, to work repentance through humility, God defers his final judgment on sinners. And that's as far as Solomon gets in his reflective thought. Well, so far, so good. Solomon here offers some modest conjectures as to how he might explain the place of evil in the eternal counsels of God. But Solomon, too, was a creature of time and space, wasn't he? Like all the rest of us, Solomon occupied a distinct space of time in human history. The years of Solomon's life ran roughly a thousand years before Christ. The things Solomon knew, and he says there are things he knows, the things Solomon knew, he knew well enough to be counted among the wisest of men. But, of course, he only knew what he knew. He only knew what he was able to know, what had been given him to know. But after Solomon, a thousand years later, the scroll of history had unrolled ten more centuries of God's eternal decree. 
Ten more centuries of redemption history, a history unknown to Solomon, but known to the apostles, known to Paul, and known to us. Those ten centuries after Solomon have made clearer to us the chief end of man, that the chief end of man to glorify and enjoy God forever, that is something far loftier and more glorious than the mere enjoyment of our work and leisure. Solomon didn't understand that in his day. We do. And those centuries also made far clearer to us the glory of God in his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Those ten centuries after Solomon clarified considerably both the interests of man and the glory of God by answering definitively how God was going to deal with the problem of wickedness. the problem of man's sin. And yes, Solomon was right to an extent. It was going to involve some waiting. It was going to involve some time. And yes, he was right again in his second conjecture. It was also going to involve the beastly behavior of men. But as I said before, Solomon, a thousand years before Christ, only knew what he was able to know. The Apostle Paul, himself, formerly a rather beastly man, wasn't he? Paul came to know what Solomon couldn't. God's eternal decree regarding the problem of man's sin. It was spelled out for him and for us on the pages of history. Solomon didn't know. Paul and the Apostles did. Namely, That when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. How is God going to deal with the problem of wickedness that so perplexed Solomon? Well, it was by the coming of Christ into the world in the days of Caesar Augustus. It was by Christ's vicarious obedience both to the letter and the spirit of God's law. It was by his vicarious death for guilty sinners. In short, it was the making of him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the answer. That's how God has dealt with the problem of sin. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is God's answer to the problem of wickedness. 
O come, let us adore him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are way over our heads when we look into these things because we are very small. Our minds are very small and limited and formed by all sorts of faulty preconceptions that we were raised with. We thank you for the work of your spirit to clear away the cobwebs, to light a candle in our brains that we might begin to understand some small part of the grace and the glory of God in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us and teach our children as well to enter in to that kingdom, that power, that glory that is his. We pray that we would come to a better understanding of what it is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, understood thoroughly the temptations and troubles and suffering that we too face. He understands it. And as the mediator reigning from heaven on our behalf, he is our advocate before your throne. Thank you that in him, through faith, united to him, we appear before you clothed not in our own filthy rags, the best we can do, but we appear clothed in the very righteousness and radiance of Christ. Help us to take these things to heart, that we might exalt all of our days, whether they be few or many, and that you might gain the glory of lives committed and consecrated to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.